0: Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's the podcast from Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry Campaign. We share the inspirational stories of individuals who set their sights on a problem and then use their strengths to create solutions. On today's episode, you'll hear from the food equity advocate, Dr. Kofi Essel. He's a pediatrician at Children's National Hospital and the director of culinary medicine at the George Washington School of Medicine. We'll be right back after this. I'm joined today by my sister, Debbie Shore, the co-founder of Share Our Strength. Uh, Glad to have you back on the podcast, Deb.
1: Yeah, super happy to be here today.
0: Uh, And especially because we've got a really special guest who's been uh, intimately involved with Share Our Strength for a number of years now and has an expertise that the times uh, this particular moment in time uh, demands. We're here with Dr. Kofi Essel, pediatrician at Children's National Hospital and director of culinary medicine. At George Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Essel wears many, many hats. He's an educator, an author, a speaker, a community activist. He's got expertise in food insecurity and obesity. Um, there's nobody we'd rather be talking to right now. Dr. Essel, thanks for being with us.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: You know, there's a, a number of things that I want to talk to you about, but as of today, at this particular moment, um, we're In the week that President Biden just had his epic two-hour press conference, one of the things that came out of that was the possibility that the child tax credit, which lifted 40% of kids out of poverty over the past year, um, will likely lapse and perhaps not be included in his Build Back Better legislation. So uh, I know my sister Debbie and I have a number of specifics that we're going to want to get into, but for me, one of the, the backdrops of this conversation, doctor, is... How do more of us do what you've done? How do we be a voice for kids? How is it that we can, in our our country, given all the struggles that families and kids have been through over the last two years of this pandemic, how can we take a measure that's lifted 40% of kids out of poverty and let that be reversed? What do we need to do to to fight harder? How do we get more people in this fight? So I just suggest that as kind of a, a backdrop that I'll... I'll keep coming back to, but I, I want to make sure that we introduce you to our listeners and get an understanding of how you came to be doing, what you're doing now, um, when you first realized you were going to be a pediatrician and what your path has been.
2: Yeah, no, that's a wonderful question. Um, and I love that backdrop. I think it's it's really important and, and we'll definitely highlight uh, those, those principles today. Um, so uh, I think back, let's Go back. I grew up in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, I ended up going to college uh, out in Atlanta at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And at the time when I was in college, knew I wanted to sort of do medicine, kind of had the pipe dream, and um, uh, grew up uh, in a home where my mom was a nurse, and kind of always grew up around healthcare. And uh, you know, I played basketball, I had injuries. That, you know, healed myself with bandages and all that stuff. And I really was into that world. Um, i I went into into college at Emory and uh at the time I realized something that was happening. I was you know studying for my test and and I was getting tired I was you know having the the sugary drinks or the candy or whatever it is and, and I kept falling asleep and I'm like, I need to be focused, I have to perform well in these tests. I didn't know what to do, and uh, I actually joined a peer education group on uh, nutrition, and we focused on how do you power eat? How do you eat to have more energy? And I thought that was actually one of the most groundbreaking things for me, because I started sharing that with others, and other people started gaining benefits from that, and I saw, you know, another realm of the power of food, uh, even in that little small setting there. I got to college or to med school at George Washington University, um, and I realized that, you know, Physicians don't really do nutrition like that 's not really a thing. Physicians do you know other stuff we don 't really incorporate nutrition into the work that we do. I remember getting ready for my first summer experience and sitting in, in this office at G w and they were asking, "Hey, what do you want to do over the summer?" And I was like, "You know um, i've played sports all my life, I, I guess you know some kind of surgery or sports medicine or orthopedics, but I have this interest in nutrition, but I know doctors don 't really do that, right And I looked at her. She shrugged her shoulders. She looked at me. I shrugged my shoulders, and we went on Google, the the you know the, the most accurate place to find this information, of course. So I went on Google, and we found this fellowship for physician or for medical students. It was uh, the American Society of Nutrition had a clinical nutrition fellowship where I got to work with one of sixty different mentors around the country. And I ended up working with a, a guy out in, in uh, Connecticut named Dr. David Katz. And that was the first time I got to see how you can incorporate and integrate this world of nutrition health and and sort of medicine, allopathic medicine. And it was so powerful to see that. And I knew from then on, that was going to be a part of my career. When it was my third year of medical school, when we had to decide what kind of, or preparing to decide what do we want to go into in our future, I realized something. I had the most fun on pediatrics. I really appreciated working with kids. I loved, enjoyed it. I looked around at the people I was working with. They were smiling. They were happy. They were full of joy. And that was something that I I found to be really reassuring. In addition, my mentorship all throughout the time I was in medical school, they were advocates and they had worked closely with young people. And I realized that they were a big part of my story and my journey as well. So when I put all these together, I I realized that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with kids. I wanted to learn how to be a better advocate and give a voice to the voiceless. And I wanted to work in the the realm of nutrition, recognizing that it wasn't really well taught in medical education, but what could we do to... Improve this, recognize this is one of the most powerful tools to transform the health of populations. But that very powerful tool, we don't even learn about very effectively in that training practice to be able to equip our families with those skills that they need to take over their own health. That was critically important for me to realize. And I wanted to pass that skill on to others as well. And that's why I sort of I combined those worlds
0: together. And, Dr. Say a word about whether, um, has that continued to be the case? Have you been able to change that? Do you, because of your uh, passion for the connection between nutrition and the work that a physician does. Has that made you an outlier? Has there been resistance in the profession? What's the state of it now compared to when you set out?
2: There's not a lot of money in nutrition. Um, There's not a lot of money in bananas and apples and uh, lentils, uh, beans, nuts, legumes, right? So these, these, are, these are not the biggest sources of, of, of funding initiatives. Um, I, I would say the most important thing, some of the most important things that would change what we're seeing now is sort of adding more nutrition to our examinations, our standardized tests, those kind of things and seeing and and recognizing a focus, a shift in focus in prevention uh, more than sort of the treatment uh, of of patients. uh, And once they've already had the disease. In general, when you look across the board, um, uh, some of the uh, the past studies have shown us that there's not a ton of nutrition education, less than half of, of schools around the country are doing even the minimum number of hours of 25 hours of nutrition education. And when you talk about that kind of education, it's really done in that first year, second year where you get a lot of book knowledge, but not a lot of practical skill that usually comes in their third and fourth year. When we go on to the, the medical wards, we're going and seeing patients and those kind of things. There's very, very little done in that practical piece of time during that third and fourth year. So I would say things have not gotten much better, but there's now movements to incorporate this, recognizing that this voice matters. One of the things that, that I'm a part of and you all mentioned earlier is, is culinary medicine. Um, culinary medicine is really where we bring the art of cooking and the science of medicine together. And really, we we all are are really about uh, empowering families, empowering uh, providers and clinicians to be able to educate and train their families, and also empowering the families to be able to take over their own health. For us in culinary medicine, um, the, where I'm working at, at GW, we do a phenomenal job of integrating that into the curriculum, where students are able to learn that. We have interest groups, we have uh, lectures, we have uh, electives that we do where we get in the kitchen together, we cook together, and we learn great skills together. So it's definitely improving around the country. Um, but in terms of the numbers, we're not seeing the numbers change just
0: yet. Well, I'm going to bring my sister in, but just before I do, uh, I'm going to say you've already changed my definition of, of, of power eating. I, I thought I was power eating at Shake Shack last week, but I don't think that's what you meant. So I'm going I'm to think about <laughs> it a, a new way now. <laughs> so thank you. Yes, you, you probably fell asleep after that. That's the wrong kind of power. <laughs> Go ahead, Deb.
1: Yeah. Just, you know, related to what you just said, Doctor, given that you're, you know, other than uh, mom and dad, your pediatricians are kind of the first line of defense for kids um, for identifying just a range of, of health issues. And I'm wondering how you talk to parents about it. Um, are they open to hearing about, you know, whether their kids need better nutrition? Are they defensive? Are they excited about what you're talking to them about? How does How do those conversations go?
2: It's a great question. Um, so, I get the opportunity of working in a more marginalized area in Washington, D.C., as a community pediatrician. Um, it's a wonderful opportunity that I, I am honored to be a part of and, and to work where I do work. Um, the way, way I would think about it is um, food insecurity, um, which, you know, uh, <laughs> The first time I learned about this term is actually through your organization, but food insecurity, uh, when all members in a household don't have consistent access to healthy and nutritious foods, to live an active and healthy lifestyle, is so prevalent around the country. It's ubiquitous, right? In addition, especially in marginalized areas, when I work with my families, I know food insecurity is in the background. I know it's part of the dialogue and the conversation, but may not come up by means of them wanting to talk about it because it's such a sensitive topic. So what I try to do is always make sure to keep that in the forefront. And as a result of that, recognizing that food insecurity is so prevalent, we actually screen in our clinic. And in our clinic, we see uh, more than one in five patients, more than one in five families that we see are experiencing the, the hardships of food insecurity and food hardship in general.
1: Are you screening for, or, or is it about weight and height? Or is it about, are you asking questions and assessing by the answers you're getting from the family? or both?
2: One of the things that that I learned a few years ago when I started really diving into this this world in food insecurity is I would ask providers around the country, hey, are you looking for food insecurity or hunger in your clinic? And I would hear, yes, we are. We're looking for it. Okay. How do you identify it? Are you using some sort of screening tool? No, no, no. We, We look for signs and symptoms. The most important sign they look for is weight loss, right? So that is interesting because the reality around food insecurity is in fact, it's invisible. Right? You cannot consistently rely on any clinical signs, laboratory changes, anthropometric changes to be able to determine if a family is experiencing food insecurity. So in general, what we do is we use a validated screener in our clinical setting universally. Ask all families. We don't just identify what we see and use that our stigma and our bias. We ask all families these questions. There are two standardized screening questions that we use that we call the hunger vital sign. These are validated screeners that came out of the gold standard 18-item questionnaire that the USDA uses every year in identifying sort of national prevalence of food insecurity. Those first two questions uh, ask basically about uh, uh, families' challenges around food, and it gives us a better sense of what's going on. If one or both of those questions are positive, whether they're often true or sometimes true, that is enough for us to say this family is at risk for food insecurity and it is time for us to intervene to support the family.
1: So so just on that topic, I mean, my last question on this piece would be, and it's a perfect time to ask it, the difference between hunger and food insecurity, because, you know, a lot of people use it interchangeably. I know there's a difference and if you could explain it, I think that would be so super helpful.
2: Yeah. So when I say the word hunger, uh, when I say the word food insecurity, rather, there's confusion. There's, you know, there's like, what is he talking about? The security of food in this country. There's, there's not the same sort of response as I use the word hunger. Hunger is more tangible for people. They, they resonate with it more. So as an advocate, I recognize the power of the term. But in general, as a scientist and a researcher, I recognize it two different things. Food insecurity, as we mentioned, when all members in a household don't consistently have access to healthy and nutritious foods to live an active and healthy lifestyle. We recognize that. Food insecurity can lead to hunger. The individual sensation of the lack of food, that pain, that that discomfort that occurs when one has food removed from them, right? That is a different experience. And we know that food insecurity can lead to hunger, but they're technically two different things. It is incredibly hard to measure hunger. How do you measure hunger in someone? but we do have ways of measuring food insecurity by using screeners and by using tools. Uh, so that's kind of how I, I use it. And that's the difference that I usually talk about.
0: Doctor, I, I was going to ask you, as you were talking about the families that you see and, and what kids present with, uh, introduce us to these families in a little bit more detail. Paint us a, a little bit of a picture of um, if a family is presenting with food insecurity, what other types of issues are, are, are they dealing with in their lives to the extent that, that you can assess that? Yeah, no, that's, that's
2: good. Um, so I usually think about this in sort of a, a trajectory. And when you think about food insecurity, of course, the effects of food insecurity itself are, are toxic and, and stressful for families, but also how families sort of respond, how they cope with this lack and deprivation of food for periods of time. Um, so the way I think about it, typically I think of it in four steps. The first step I usually think about is this concept that I, I call food anxiety, a of perseveration, a preoccupation with where one's next meal is gonna come from. That is often the story that I hear from my families. This idea of a toxic stressor that is a palpable toxic stressor affecting my what I call prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that helps me to shift and focus on many different things. What ends up happening is there's a reduction of one's cognitive bandwidth, the ability to shift and focus on the multiple things that oftentimes comes with privilege, right? Planning ahead, thinking about the next 10 years, all these things that tend to come with you know being able to have uh, organized functioning that comes from the privilege of having the security of Finances and food and those kind of things, so food anxiety is that first thing that I think of. The next thing that I, I talk about is this decrease in the quality of food. When the quality of food begins to decrease, that's the next step, and usually that's the variety of food begins to decrease, the desirability of food. I as, as a result of a decreased cognitive bandwidth, i'm not maybe going to have the same capacity. Uh, because I'm taking on more jobs, I'm doing more other things, I just have more stress on my brain to be able to meal plan for that two weeks ahead, to be able to sort of get all these things done ahead of time. Uh, the desirability of food begins to decrease because, you know what, as a result, I don't wanna waste food. My children, I know they'll eat these five foods. Let me get them. I know they co- they're cost effective, they're easy to access, and I know they're gonna smile when I give it to them. And I'm a good parent, and I wanna provide things to my kids that I know is gonna make them happy and joyful, and this is what I know I can do. It's cheap, easy to access, and as a result, let me go ahead and do that. So you'll see sort of that processing going on. And the last thing I'll say about that, just in general, is you, you see sort of the nutritional value of food decreasing and the caloric density of food increasing at this period as well, right, when the quality changes. Because we know, we like to argue this, but we know that quality, healthy food has an increase in price, right? And that there's there's a price increase, whether that's time, whether that's money, whatever that may be, that's a a true factor. After the quality of food begins to decrease in a family, the next thing that families often talk about is the quantity of food begins to decrease. The first person, of course, who's going to decrease their quantity is parents, right? They're going to do everything they can to protect their children from experiencing the toxic stress of food insecurity. They don't want their children even to know about it. So even when I bring it up in clinic, I am sensitive to that and, and, and recognize that when we screen and talk about this, it needs to be in a very sensitive way where I'm not quote unquote calling out the parent because there's so much stigma around that. And they want to protect their children from knowing this exists. So parents will protect their children by doing everything they can, eating less so their children can eat more. And then lastly, when you were at the end we see families experiencing the children's food intake decreasing. We know at that point in time, we're experiencing more of the endpoints of food insecurity, more sort of of, of the worsening, epi- worse episodes of food insecurity when the child's food intake decreases. All across that period of time, even though the child intake of food, uh, food decreases at the end, we know that that palpable toxic stress is felt throughout that whole time. In, in fact, when you look at the data, we see that teenagers, they say often, hey, I eat less when so my younger kids can eat more. I don't tell my family that, that I do this. I don't tell my family that I'm aware of what's going on, but I'm doing things to compensate for what's going on in our home as well. So that's kind of the picture I, t- I tend to pay, paint when I think about what families are kind of experiencing. Along with that, there are a ton of other associations around other disease types depression anxiety a uh, 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 poor math and reading gains uh, there's all kinds of other associations that we see in the data around uh, what happens with families that are experiencing food insecurity other toxic
0: stressors uh, like this and when you're talking about toxic stressors and decreased cognitive bandwidth are you, are you talking about that in a physiological sense uh, or an emotional sense and maybe it's a, a distinction without a real difference at the end of it, but uh, are you talking about actual changes in a child's physiology?
2: Oh, man. Uh, wow. Uh, so it, it's it's definitely changes in their physiology. And one of the ways I like to, to paint this picture, I talk to my students about this all the time. A toxic stress, view it as sort of an unrelenting stressor, right? Like it's unrelenting and never gives up. When we talk about stress in general, all of us experience stress. Usually it goes up and then it comes down. We figure out how to get over it. We're fine. Everything is fine. We move on. And then another stressor comes and we get over it. But when toxic stressors are there where it's unrelenting, you don't have that support unit around you to be able to kind of buffer that stress that's going on, we say that stress ends up getting under one's skin, affecting one's brain and their functioning, their immunity, their, their, their focus, their attention, all these things. I think of three, body, uh, three parts of the brain that are affected, and I apologize for the science here, but I think it's helpful to understand. I think of the prefrontal cortex. This is the part of the brain that is important for executive function, as I mentioned before, uh, it is important for imp- impulsivity control. And that part of the brain literally starts to shrink, right? It starts to shrink in size. The brain is very malleable, it's very what we call plastic. So we see these permanent architectural changes that occur in the brain as a result of these stressors. So the brain, that part of the brain, starts to shrink. The amygdala, the part of the brain that's responsible for emotion, for fear. Begins to hypertrophy or increase in size, overshooting the stress response, not allowing you to calm it down as much as it used to be. And then the other part of the brain is the hippocampus, the part of the brain for memory, right? This part of the brain starts to shrink as well. So one's memory is affected. One's impulse control, one's ability to shift and focus executive function is affected. One's fear, anxiety, uh, stress response is increased. So you would ask the question, why is this child getting so angry when something so little happened? Why can they not focus in school? What, what's going on? Why does everybody have ADHD, right? This, these whole, all these notions, all these, we, these words, all these diagnoses that we overlay with something else are really typically a result or often, not typically, often a result of stressors, toxic stressors, trauma. Those things influence one's behavior. They influence one's physiology, which ultimately influences one's behavior and also their outcomes. How, does, how do we expect this child to thrive in school? How do we expect this child to thrive as they continue to get older? And they make, you know, how do we want them to make good decisions when their brain is being altered in this kind of way? And not making an excuse to say they can't, but what I'm saying is it makes it harder.
1: You're, you're probably familiar with this conversation. This reminds me of, uh, you're probably familiar with Paul Tuft's book. How's children succeed. It's all about this. And, you know, I I didn't realize that, that physiologically the brain shrinks in these different spots. How long does it take for it to kind of, you know, come back once nutrition is, um, you know, uh, given to them?
2: Yeah. uh, Nutrition is, unfortunately, is the answer for many things. But in this case, Uh, it's not nutrition right this case you're talking about uh the unrelenting stress and removing that stress right like that is that is the those are the things that help to improve those things but again like (laughs) these things take time they take therapy they take uh sort of long-term sort of, uh, intentional, um, practice to help families. I mean, it takes a trauma-informed approach as we work with families. Like it is, is one of those things that it, it, it takes a village to heal the stressors of systematic changes in communities, in populations. It, it just does.
0: Well, you know, th- th- this I think relates to what I was saying when we first started to speak, doctor, you know, when I, when you think about the fact that kids are being, uh, damaged in a their health is being damaged, their physical development is being damaged by these stressors related to poverty, related to food insecurity. Uh, it, it just uh, It's almost uh, maddening that in a, in a world where we've got some difficult challenges that sometimes feel unsolvable, one of the things we've always said to share our strength is, at least when it comes to hunger and food insecurity, this is a solvable problem. We have no shortage of food. In this country, uh, and it just makes me question what we need to be doing to, uh, to frankly, just fight harder or more effectively to make sure that voices uh, like yours are, are heard. I, uh, you know, I, I think most people know and they see lines in, uh, you know, in the news lines at food banks of Americans who need food assistance. I don't think they know just how. Uh, incredibly damaging this is uh, in terms of the, the long-term impact on on kids and I just wonder how do you think of I know pediatricians and we have a partnership with the American Academy of Pediatri- Pediatrics uh, pediatricians are you know a trusted voice in so many communities what else can uh, docs like yourself be doing to play a powerful role in advocacy and public policy Um so let me bring, let me
2: highlight something you just mentioned as well. And, and I think that we can do better. We can do more and we can be more strategic in how we do that. And, and that's why I've always been in alignment with the work you all are, are, are doing and have been doing because that has been your vision and focus. And it's so powerful to see. I think one of the things that I often think about is the, the role of food insecurity and, and food itself. When a family has a financial hardship. Food is one of the first things that ends up going right because uh, because of how fungible, uh, flexible that fin- the food account is typically. Someone will change that how much they're spending towards their food, but food insecurity typically doesn't travel by itself. T- typically travels with so many other things as well, right? These other financial hardships and other stressors that families experience. So addressing the food piece is a huge piece, not solely. But it's such a huge piece. When you talk about child tax credits and thinking about how you reduce some of these things in the long run, providing food directly is so important, but providing meaningful wage, right? Providing the resources, that employment, those kind of things really think about uh, addressing this from more of a root approach that really takes food into account and everything else. But when you address the food, it increases cognitive bandwidth. It increases the ability to, to focus on other things and to be able to get some of these other things in place as well, because it's such a big factor for families. When you ask the questions about pediatricians, I think that's so, so important. And in other physicians and and clinicians around the country, I think we have a very important role in this. I think our voice needs to be heard. um, And I I think it can be heard if we do it in in, in the right way and get our voice out there in the right way. In 2015, and and I'm appreciative to hear that you all are working with American Academy of Pediatrics, they put out their first policy statement on food insecurity in 2015. And this policy statement encouraged providers to screen universally, to intervene in clinical settings, and to do something that we call advocating for policies that end childhood hunger. This was built and baked into their recommendations to pediatricians across the country. And we really took that in because there's there's something about that story, something about that really encourages us to say, hey, providers around the country, to get more aware of this, to be able to speak up uh, uh, against this, the way to do this is by starting with the basics screen and intervene in your clinical settings, right? Screen to identify how prevalent it is going on in your clinical setting. Because the assumption typically is every time I work with a clinical practice around the country, they tell me when they start screening, like we never knew it was so prevalent in our clinic. When we saw from the outside, we never assumed that this family dressed the way they did, coming in the way they did, would be experiencing food hardship. It was something that was surprising to them, and it made them want to respond. It grabbed their heart and made them want to respond. And I think that's the place to start. Screening in one's clinical setting, using a validated screener, such as the Hunger Vital Sign, is a powerful, easy-to-use screener that integrates well into clinical settings. And then being able to intervene effectively. The piece of paper that we give to a family, that's great, you know, you know, with some resources on there. I'm not going to take anything away from that, but we have to figure out more effective strategies to work with our families on the ground, recognizing that oftentimes that paper doesn't leave the clinic, right? It stays on the floor. It's in the trash. You know, it never gets anywhere. So recognizing better systems that we can close the loop is really important when we intervene. When we screen and intervene, and, and working with local anti-hunger groups, in which every state has them, working with your local anti-hunger, you can learn how to do this more effectively in your clinical spaces. Working with federal nutrition programs, emergency food relief, and the list goes on and on. That in itself, getting the stories of your families, hearing that and what's going on, understanding the prevalence. That will help us move forward as advocates and providers to do this more effectively. Then when we are asked or or when there is a call to go and give a testimony for your local Congress, then you're able to do that more effectively with those stories. Then, you know, the idea of training the next generation of providers to be advocates, right? Those students that you're working with and helping them become future, you know, uh, policy changers and and what that may be. You're teaching them early on as well and being an advocate by teaching, using your voice in that way. There's advocacy through your writing, right? Op-ed writing right? That's a wonderful opportunity that we have. Sometimes, you know, people really respect our voices, you know, and and that, that means something. Op-ed writing, talking to your local congressperson, uh, writing to the editor, blogs, those kinds of things are great ways to do it. I can go on and on, but let me pause there. There's a lot of great ways that I would say, and those are some of the ways we can do it.
0: Well, let me ask you, about, I want to get my give the microphone back to my sister in a minute, but let me ask you about one other thing that we haven't talked about, which is race. Uh, you, you were saying food insecurity doesn't travel by itself, and you're talking about some of these other issues connected to why families are struggling. What's your sense of how we need to understand structural, systemic racism and the role it's played in poverty in this country? I know that's a a big, deep question, but I don't think we can talk about this issue without at least referencing it.
2: Um, let's, let's touch on it uh, a bit. I think that the first thing I tend to think about are the numbers. Let's just look at gross numbers. So let's look at families, households with children uh, experiencing food insecurity. Let's take... Uh, um, white American households, about 10% uh, of households with children experiencing food insecurity, one in 10, still pretty high. When you look at uh, black and brown communities, you're seeing that number jump up by two and three times, 20 and 30%, right? That's a significant change that we see. When we look at poverty and, and or low income category in families and households, you see um, you know, near almost one in two households Uh, uh, Black and brown communities experiencing uh, low income, less than 200% of the federal poverty line. So double federal poverty line, which is about $26,000 for federal poverty line. so about $52,000 a year, right? So that is not a a ton of money um, when you think about that for a family of four. Um, I think of initially, the, the thing I taught my students about is that it's very natural, especially with what we see around us, to assume, hey, this must be as a result of an individual responsibility. Right? Healthcare, sometimes we we adopt this idea that everything that's happened to someone is because themselves are not eating well, they're not exercising enough, they're not sleeping enough. Just do that like I do, and everything would be fine. Understanding the same for poverty, for for food insecurity, and taking that lens will get you in trouble and will continue to expand your stigma and your bias towards. Uh, especially marginalized populations and communities of color as is. When I think about COVID in itself, one of the things I, I often used to describe it as is, is this idea of a great equalizer, right? Everybody's equally touched by COVID. You saw that being done, prime ministers and everybody. And then you gazed more and you saw it was a great magnifier, magnifying disparities that had existed all along. And now we have to do something. It was in our face and we have to do something about it. But these disparities existed all along. When you look at um, even the, the, the role of even the wealth gap, you think about why the wealth gap is there. When you look at white American median income, it's about 188,000. Black American, Hispanic American, you're looking at about twenty-four and 36,000, eight times less and five times less why is this? Is this laziness? Is this you're not working hard enough? Or is this really systemic things that have occurred that have led to what we see today? You talk about housing covenants and redlining, where the government literally sponsored the outlining of communities and based on how we can invest in those communities. And certain communities based on who lived in those communities were given certain labels. Communities of color were given labels such as C and D. And when communities were given the label of D or painted in red, When Federal Housing Administration loans became available, low-interest loans in the 30s and 40s, what happened? These individuals were not eligible for these loans. They were not eligible to get these loans, low-interest loans to be able to purchase housing. And it's not to say they didn't have the money, but they weren't able to get it in an equitable way. So as a result, you see this separation of income and wealth that occurs over the years, that what ends up happening. You look over time, and these communities continue to look the same way they do. When uh, When you take money out of those communities, what happens? Grocery stores begin to leave. Uh, banks begin to leave. Uh, these food sources begin to leave. And you leave these communities dry, high and dry, right? So then you see the investment of money that goes from taxes in these low-income communities going into schools. The schools are underperforming because they're not getting enough money because all the money has been pulled out of the communities, right? These are the things that have happened that have led to what we see today. And of course, the argument is, well, that happened back then. The, the, experience, the, the effects of those things continue to happen to this day. And as a result of that, we see what we see today. You look at uh, American Indian, Alaskan Native communities that we often don't talk about. You see high rates of food insecurity, 25% more. In some communities, up to 90% or more of the community is experiencing food insecurity as a result of historical traumas, right? Loss of food sovereignty, loss of lo- loss of land. These are things that have happened and we can't just close our eyes, and say it's happened back then, don't worry about it. They've affected how people view and see the world and how they experience things today. And as a result, we have to address them in an equitable way to think about how to do this more, more efficaciously.
1: Um, Just before we close, I I wanted to know, uh, doctor, I know we partnered with you um, with the Children's National Hospital's patient navigator, I think it was called, and wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about it and what some of the key outcomes
2: were. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, so our, our seed funding, the ability to do the work we've done, um, your organization provided that for us. Uh, you saw the vision that we had, and it's been, it's been amazing to see this journey come, come to life. Um, one of the things we recognize is the, the, the first thousand days of life, uh, how effective or how, how important that is, how malleable the brain is and, and one's, one's health is and how important it is to introduce good and nutritious foods early on. One of the things we, we did together was create a food prescription program uh, that we globally call FLIPRX, the Family Lifestyle Program Food Prescription Initiative. This food prescription program provides fresh produce to our families that are experiencing marginalization, uh, that are experiencing food insecurity based on our screeners, that are experiencing diet-related chronic diseases, and for our young people. And as a result of that fresh produce that's delivered to their home, we also couple it with uh, cooking classes, video education, really tailored towards a a marginalized African-American community in the District of Columbia. And it's been a powerful thing to see how families have been able to then redistribute some of their money towards other important things in their home, how they've been increasing the quality of foods that they're eating, trying new foods that they weren't trying before, talking about how kids, whenever that bag hits their door, they're running to the door, seeing what's new that week that they can explore and enjoy for that week. Kids have really benefited from it. They've really enjoyed it. We've coupled that with our patient navigator program, recognizing that clinicians have difficulty um, in doing all the stuff we want them to do right every time something comes up we tell the primary care provider we need you to screen for this we need you to look for this and there's not enough time to do everything with this 15 minute or less visit so as a result we've coupled and created a patient navigator program where we train patient navigators to take the referrals of our clinicians and connect our families to meaningful programs federal nutrition programs as needed and beneficial and also emergency food relief programs or ancillary programs, cooking classes and and such as well, as needed and beneficial as well. So we've been able to create that program, pilot it. It's going so well. It's expanding. We're going to be able to bring more clinics under us, train clinicians around the district uh, about food insecurity, how to address it more effectively, and learn how to uh, sort of have a really closed loop system to be able to refer their families to get great benefits from as well. So that's kind of what we're doing. We're excited about it. It's growing and it's it's going so well.
1: And w- without knowing how much labor is involved and and whether or not we involve some of our local chefs, which we might have, um, I'm wondering if it's, you know, in your opinion, is it something that's scalable? Is it expensive? Is it easy to, to get into other communities?
2: Definitely design this with scalability in mind, recognizing that this is something we're seeing around the country, urban, suburban, rural areas. And we have that goal in mind. And we're, we're producing the data, the infrastructure right now to be able to replicate that. Papers will be coming out soon and all kinds of different strategies and, and processes from this work um, over the, the coming year or two, we should have a ton of work out there. So look forward to that.
0: Uh, I, I get the sense from your, you just kind of exude positive energy and a Um, getting the sense that you're uh, an optimist at heart. But I wanted to ask you if we're, uh, in terms of the work that we've been talking about, uh, if you look at it longitudinally since you've been at this work, are we headed in the right direction? Are we headed in the wrong direction? Is it a little bit of both? Uh, If we're headed in the right direction, what can we do to get there faster?
2: Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm eternal optimist for sure. We're heading in the right direction. Let's start there. We are heading in the right direction. One of the things that you know, we used to uh, see all the time, and, and I'll, I'll give one example. Um, the average amount uh, for SNAP, uh, the food stamp program that families were receiving, was about $1.40 per person per meal um, before COVID, actually. And what you would see typically is this pattern of families using more than 60% of that spending. Uh, they get their money on the EBT card or debit card, they would go and spend it in the stores, and 60% of it would be used not by day 20, not by day 30, but by day 7. by day 14. Half of it, 80% of it is gone by day 14, leaving only a small amount for those last two weeks. And in those last two weeks, you saw increased hospitalizations, diabetic episodes, all kinds of results would occur as a result of having that deprivation. And then what would you see? Because of that, it creates a maladaptive relationship with food too, where you see that next month, you go in, you go and spend more. The grocery stores, for whatever reason, are changing the price of the food at that, that time of the month for whatever reason, right? And you're purchasing these highly processed foods that seem to last, that you get the benefit from, um, early on, and you see this sort of cycling continue. And I have difficulty in spending on these fruits and vegetables that may I may not be able to save as long, right? They may go bad quickly. Well, what we've seen as of October 1st is uh, as a result of sort of reevaluation of of, the, of what families are receiving. 99% of can- counties were clearly seeing that they weren't getting and en- families were not getting enough in their snack. We increased the levels to historically high levels, to so about a dollar and eighty or more per person per meal. And although that sounds small, it's a huge change. With this kind of change that we saw um, after our last recession between 2007 and 2009, we saw huge benefits, reduction of food insecurity and poverty and all kinds of things as well. We expect this to have huge dividends. We are seeing changes around uh, recommendations around uh, school meals in in particular as well. I, I can go on and on about this, but ultimately what the, the, the point I'm trying to make is we are moving in the right direction. You're seeing changes happening at the upstream level and you're seeing people downstream getting a sense of what's going on and responding as well. And that combination of upstream and downstream is so
0: important. And that's what you're seeing improving as we move forward. Well, thanks for bringing us to a conclusion on uh, such a positive note, Doctor. And thank you so much for being with us. If uh, our listeners are uh, as inspired as I am, I hope they will... Uh, take to heart the uh, progress uh, that you've described, uh, but also the challenges that still remain. I hope they'll stay involved with Share Our Strength in our No Get Hungry campaign or get involved if they, they haven't been.
1: Thank you, Kofi, just, and for your commitment and leadership on this issue. Really glad you're out there doing this work. Thank you for those kind of words.
0: Thanks for listening to Ad Passion and Stir. If you want to learn more about Dr. Kofi Essel and hear other compelling episodes about creating food equity, please visit adpassionandstir.com.